Volume 3, Chapter 3 of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Nicodemus. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 3, Chapter 3. Idris stirred and awoke, alas. She awoke to misery. She saw the signs of disease on my countenance, and wondered how she could permit the long night to pass, without her having sought, not cure that was impossible, but alleviation to my sufferings. She called Adrian, my couch was quickly surrounded by friends and assistants, and such medicines as were judged fitting were administered. It was the peculiar and dreadful distinction of our visitation, that none who had been attacked by the pestilence had recovered. The first symptom of the disease was the death warrant which in no single instance had been followed by pardon or reprieve. No gleam of hope, therefore, cheered my friends. While fever-producing torpor, heavy pains, sitting like lead on my limbs and making my breast heave, were upon me, I continued insensible to everything but pain, and at last even to that. I awoke on the fourth morning as from a dreamless sleep, an irritating sense of thirst, and when I strove to speak or move, an entire dereliction of power was all I felt. For three days and nights Idris had not moved from my side. She administered to all my wants, and never slept nor rested. She did not hope, and therefore she neither endeavored to read the physician's countenance, nor to watch for symptoms of recovery. All her thought was to attend on me to the last, and then to lie down and die beside me. On the third night animation was suspended. To the eye and touch of all I was dead. With earnest prayer, almost with force, Adrian tried to draw Idris from me. He exhausted every adjuration, her child's welfare and his own. She shook her head and wiped a stealing tear from her sunk cheek, but would not yield. She entreated to be allowed to watch me that one night only, with such affliction and meek earnestness, that she gained her point, and sat silent and motionless, except when stung by intolerable remembrance. She kissed my closed eyes and pallid lips, and pressed my stiffening hands to her beating heart. At dead of night, when though it was midwinter, the cock crowed at three o'clock, as herald of the morning change, while hanging over me, and mourning and silent, bitter thought for the loss of all of love towards her that had been enshrined in my heart, her disheveled hair hung over her face, and the long tresses fell on the bed. She saw one ringlet in motion, and the scattered hair slightly stirred, as by a breath. It is not so, she thought, for he will never breathe more. Several times the same thing occurred, and she only marked it by the same reflection, till the whole ringlet waved back, and she thought she saw my breast heave. Her first emotion was deadly fear. Cold dew stood on her brow. My eyes half opened, and reassured she would have exclaimed, He lives! But the words were choked by a spasm, and she fell with a groan on the floor. Adrian was in the chamber. After long watching, he had unwillingly fallen into a sleep. He started up and beheld his sister senseless on the earth, weltering in a stream of blood that gushed from her mouth. Increasing signs of life in me in some degree explained her state. The surprise, the burst of joy, the revulsion of every sentiment, had been too much for her frame, worn by long months of care, late shattered by every species of woe and toil. She was now in far greater danger than I. The wheels and springs of my life, once again set in motion, acquired elasticity from their short suspension. For a long time, no one believed that I should indeed continue to live. 
During the reign of the plague upon earth, not one person attacked by the grim disease had recovered. My restoration was looked on as a deception. Every moment it was expected that the evil symptoms would recur with redoubled violence, until confirmed convalescence, absence of all fever or pain, and increasing strength, brought slow conviction that I had recovered from the plague. The restoration of Idris was more problematical. When I had been attacked by illness, her cheeks were sunk, her form emaciated. But now the vessel, which had broken from the effects of extreme agitation, did not entirely heal, but was as a channel that drop by drop drew from her the ruddy stream that vivified her heart. Her hollow eyes and worn countenance had a ghastly appearance. Her cheekbones, her open fair brow, the projection of the mouth, stood fearfully prominent. You might tell each bone in the thin anatomy of her frame. Her hand hung powerless, each joint lay bare, so that the light penetrated through and through. It was strange that life could exist in what was wasted and worn into a very type of death. To take her from these heart-breaking scenes, to lead her to forget the world's desolation and the variety of objects presented by traveling, and to nurse her failing strength in the mild climate towards which we had resolved to journey, was my last hope for her preservation. The preparations for our departure, which had been suspended during my illness, were renewed. I did not revive to doubtful convalescence. Health spent her treasures upon me. As the tree in spring may feel from its wrinkled limbs the fresh green break forth, and the living sap rise and circulate, so did the renewed vigor of my frame, the cheerful current of my blood, the newborn elasticity of my limbs, influence my mind to cheerful endurance and pleasurable thoughts. My body, late the heavy weight that bound me to the tomb, was exuberant with health. Mere common exercises were insufficient for my reviving strength. Methought I could emulate the speed of the racehorse, discern through the air objects at a blinding distance, hear the operations of nature in her mute abodes. My senses had become so refined and susceptible after my recovery from mortal disease. Hope, among my other blessings, was not denied to me, and I did fondly trust that my unwearied attentions would restore my adored girl. I was therefore eager to forward our preparations. According to the plan first laid down, we were to have quitted London on the 25th of November, and in pursuance of this scheme two-thirds of our people, the people, all that remained of England, had gone forward, and had already been some weeks in Paris. First my illness, and subsequently that of Idris, had detained Adrian with his division, which consisted of three hundred persons, so that now we departed on the 1st of January, 2098. It was my wish to keep Idris as distant as possible from the hurry and clamor of the crowd, and to hide from her those appearances that would remind her most forcibly of our real situation. We separated ourselves to a great degree from Adrian, who was obliged to give his whole time to public business. The Countess of Windsor traveled with her son. Clara, Evelyn, and a female who acted as our attendant were the only persons with whom we had contact. We occupied a commodious carriage. Our servant officiated as coachman. A party of about twenty persons preceded us at a small distance. They had it in charge to prepare our halting places and our nightly abode. They had been selected for this service out of a great number that offered, on account of their superior sagacity of the man who had been appointed their leader. Immediately on our departure I was delighted to find a change in Idris, which I fondly hoped prognosticated the happiest results. All the cheerfulness and gentle gaiety natural to her revived. She was weak, and this alteration was rather displayed in looks and voice than in acts, 
but it was permanent and real. My recovery from the plague and confirmed health instilled into her a firm belief that I was now secure from this dread enemy. She told me that she was sure she would recover, that she had a presentiment, that the tide of calamity which deluged our unhappy race had now turned, that the remnant would be preserved, and among them the dear objects of her tender affection, and that in some selected spot we should wear out our lives together in pleasant society. Do not let my state of feebleness deceive you, she said. I feel that I am better. There is a quick life within me, and a spirit of anticipation that assures me that I shall continue long to make a part of this world. I shall throw off this degrading weakness of body, which infects even my mind with debility, and I shall enter again on the performance of my duties. I was sorry to leave Windsor, but now I am weaned from this local attachment. I am content to remove to a mild climate, which will complete my recovery. Trust me, dearest, I shall never leave you, nor my brother, nor these dear children. My firm determination to remain with you to the last, and to continue to contribute to your happiness and welfare, would keep me alive even if grim death were nearer at hand than he really is. I was only half reassured by these expressions. I could not believe that the over-quick flow of her blood was a sign of health, or that her burning cheeks denoted convalescence. But I had no fears of an immediate catastrophe. Nay, I persuaded myself that she would ultimately recover, and thus cheerfulness reigned in our little society. Idris conversed with animation on a thousand topics. Her chief desire was to lead our thoughts from melancholy reflections. So she drew charming pictures of a tranquil solitude, of a beauteous retreat, of the simple manners of our little tribe, and of the patriarchal brotherhood of love, which would survive the ruins of the populous nations which had lately existed. We shut out from our thoughts the present, and withdrew our eyes from the dreary landscape we traversed. Winter reigned in all its gloom. The leafless trees lay without motion against the dun sky. The forms of frost, mimicking the foliage of summer, strewed the ground. The paths were overgrown. The unplowed cornfields were patched with grass and weeds. The sheep congregated at the threshold of the cottage. The horned ox thrust his head from the window. The wind was bleak, and frequent sleet or snowstorms added to the melancholy appearance wintry nature assumed. We arrived at Rochester, and an accident caused us to be detained there a day. During that time, a circumstance occurred that changed our plans, and which, alas, in its result changed the eternal course of events, turning me from the pleasant new-sprung hope I enjoyed to an obscure and gloomy desert. But I must give some little explanation before I proceed with the final cause of our temporary alteration of plan, and refer again to those times when man walked the earth fearless, before plague had become queen of the world. There resided a family in the neighborhood of Windsor, of very humble pretensions, but which had been an object of interest to us on account of one of the persons of whom it was composed. The family of the Claytons had known better days, but after a series of reverses the father died a bankrupt, and the mother heartbroken, and a confirmed invalid retired with her five children to a little cottage between Eaton and Salt Hill. The eldest of these children, who was thirteen years old, seemed at once from the influence of adversity to acquire the sagacity and principle belonging to a more mature age. Her mother grew worse and worse in health, but Lucy attended on her, and was as a tender parent to her younger brothers and sisters, and in the meantime showed herself so good-humored, social, and benevolent, that she was beloved by all as well as honored in her little neighborhood. 
Lucy was besides extremely pretty, so when she grew to be sixteen it was to be supposed, notwithstanding her poverty, that she should have admirers. One of these was the son of a country curate. He was a generous, frank-hearted youth, with an ardent love of knowledge, and no mean acquirements. Though Lucy was untaught, her mother's conversation and manners gave her a taste for refinements superior to her present situation. She loved the youth even without knowing it, except that in any difficulty she naturally turned to him for aid, and awoke with a lighter heart every Sunday, because she knew that she would be met and accompanied by him in her evening walk with her sisters. She had another admirer, one of the head waiters at the inn at Salt Hill. He also was not without pretensions to urbane superiority, such as he learnt from gentlemen's servants and waiting maids, who, initiating him in all the slang of high life below stairs, rendered his arrogant temper ten times more intrusive. Lucy did not disclaim him. She was incapable of that feeling. But she was sorry when she saw him approach, and quietly resisted all his endeavors to establish an intimacy. The fellow soon discovered that his rival was preferred to him, and this changed what was at first a chance admiration into a passion, whose mainsprings were envy and a base desire to deprive his competitor of the advantage he enjoyed over himself. Poor Lucy's sad story was but a common one. Her lover's father died, and he was left destitute. He accepted the offer of a gentleman to go to India with him, feeling secure that he should soon acquire an independence and return to claim the hand of his beloved. He became involved in the war carried on there, was taken prisoner, and years elapsed before tidings of his existence were received in his native land. In the meantime, disastrous poverty came on Lucy. Her little cottage, which stood looking from its trellis covered with woodbine and jessamine, was burnt down, and the whole of their little property was included in the destruction. Whither betake them? By what exertion of industry could Lucy procure them another abode? Her mother, nearly bedrid, could not survive any extreme of famine-strict poverty. At this time, her other admirer stepped forward and renewed his offer of marriage. He had saved money and was going to set up a little inn at Datchet. There was nothing alluring to Lucy in this offer, except the home it secured to her mother, and she felt more sure of this, since she was struck by the apparent generosity which occasioned the present offer. She accepted it, thus sacrificing herself for the comfort and welfare of her parent. It was some years after her marriage that we became acquainted with her. The accident of a storm caused us to take refuge in the inn, where we witnessed the brutal and quarrelsome behavior of her husband, and her patient endurance. Her lot was not a fortunate one. Her first lover had returned with the hope of making her his own, and met her by accident for the first time as the mistress of his country inn, and the wife of another. He withdrew despairingly to foreign parts. Nothing went well with him. At last he enlisted and came back again wounded and sick, and yet Lucy was debarred from nursing him. Her husband's brutal disposition was aggravated by his yielding to the many temptations held out by his situation, and the consequent disarrangement of his affairs. Fortunately, she had no children, but her heart was bound up in her brothers and sisters, and these his avarice and ill-temper soon drove from the house. They were dispersed about the country, earning their livelihood with toil and care. He even showed an inclination to get rid of her mother, but Lucy was firm here. She had sacrificed herself for her. She had lived for her. She would not part with her. If the mother went, she would also go beg bread for her, die with her, but never desert her. 
The presence of Lucy was too necessary in keeping up the order of the house, and in preventing the whole establishment from going to wreck, for him to permit her to leave him. He yielded the point, but in all accesses of anger, or in his drunken fits, he recurred to the old topic, and stung poor Lucy's heart by opprobrious epithets bestowed on her parent. A passion, however, if it be wholly pure, entire, and reciprocal, brings with it its own solace. Lucy was truly and from the depth of heart devoted to her mother. The sole end she proposed to herself in life was the comfort and preservation of this parent. Though she grieved for the result, yet she did not repent of her marriage, even when her lover returned to bestow competence on her. Three years had intervened, and how in their penniless state could her mother have existed during this time? This excellent woman was worthy of her child's devotion. A perfect confidence and friendship existed between them. Besides, she was by no means illiterate, and Lucy, whose mind had been in some degree cultivated by her former lover, now found in her the only person who could understand and appreciate her. Thus, though suffering, she was by no means desolate, and when during fine summer days she led her mother into the flowery and shady lanes near their abode, a gleam of unmixed joy enlightened her countenance. She saw that her parent was happy, and she knew that this happiness was of her sole creating. Meanwhile her husband's affairs grew more and more involved. Ruin was near at hand, and she was about to lose the fruit of all of her labors. When pestilence came to change the aspect of the world, her husband reaped benefit from the universal misery, but as the disaster increased, the spirit of lawlessness seized him. He deserted his home to revel in the luxuries promised him in London, and found there a grave. Her former lover had been one of the first victims of the disease, but Lucy continued to live for and in her mother. Her courage only failed when she dreaded peril for her parent, or feared that death might prevent her from performing those duties to which she was unalterably devoted. When we had quitted Windsor for London, as the previous step to our final emigration, we visited Lucy, and arranged with her the plan of her own and her mother's removal. Lucy was sorry at the necessity which forced her to quit her native lanes and village, and to drag an infirm parent from her comforts at home, to the homeless waste of depopulate earth, but she was too well disciplined by adversity, and of too sweet a temper, to indulge in repinings at what was inevitable. Subsequent circumstances, my illness and that of Idris, drove her from our remembrance, and we called her to mind at last only to conclude that she made one of the few who came from Windsor to join the immigrants, and that she was already in Paris. When we arrived at Rochester, therefore, we were surprised to receive, by a man just come from Slough, a letter from this exemplary sufferer. His account was that, journeying from his home and passing through Datchet, he was surprised to see smoke issue from the chimney of the inn and supposing that he should find comrades for his journey assembled there, he knocked and was admitted. There was no one in the house but Lucy and her mother. The latter had been deprived of the use of her limbs by an attack of rheumatism, and so one by one all the remaining inhabitants of the country set forward, leaving them alone. Lucy entreated the man to stay with her. In a week or two her mother would be better, and they would then set out. But they must perish if they were left thus helpless and forlorn. The man said that his wife and children were already among the immigrants, and it was therefore, according to his notion, impossible for him to remain. Lucy, as a last resource, gave him a letter for Idris, to be delivered to her wherever he should meet us. This commission at least he fulfilled, and Idris received with emotion the following letter. Honored Lady, I am sure that you will remember and pity me, 
and I dare hope that you will assist me. What other hope have I? Pardon my manner of writing, I am so bewildered. A month ago my dear mother was deprived of the use of her limbs. She is already better, and in another month would, I am sure, be able to travel, in the way you were so kind as to say you would arrange for us. But now everybody is gone, everybody. As they went away, each said that perhaps my mother would be better before we were quite deserted. But three days ago I went to Samuel Woods, who on account of his newborn child remained to the last, and there being a large family of them, I thought I could persuade them to wait a little longer for us, but I found the house deserted. I have not seen a soul since till this good man came. What will become of us? My mother does not know our state. She is so ill that I have hidden it from her. Will you not send someone to us? I am sure we must perish miserably, as we are. If I were to try to move my mother now, she would die on the road, and if when she gets better I were able, I cannot guess how, to find out the roads, and get on so many miles to the sea. You would all be in France, and the great ocean would be between us, which is so terrible even to sailors. What would it be to me, a woman who never saw it? We should be imprisoned by it in this country, all, all alone, with no help. Better die where we are. I can hardly write. I cannot stop my tears. It is not for myself. I could put my trust in God and let the worst come. I think I could bear it if I were alone. But my mother, my sick, my dear, dear mother, who never since I was born spoke a harsh word to me, who has been patient in my sufferings. Pity her, dear lady. She must die a miserable death if you do not pity her. People speak carelessly of her because she is old and infirm, as if we must not all, if we are spared, become so. And then, when the young are old themselves, they will think that they ought to be taken care of. It is very silly of me to write in this way to you, but when I hear her trying not to groan, and see her look smiling on me to comfort me, when I know she is in pain, and when I think she does not know the worst, but she soon must, and then she will not complain, but I shall sit guessing at all that she is dwelling upon, of famine and misery. I feel as if my heart must break, and I do not know what I say or do. My mother, mother for whom I have borne much, God preserve you from this fate. Preserve her, lady, and he will bless you. And I, poor miserable creature as I am, will thank you and pray for you while I live. Your unhappy and dutiful servant, December 30th, 2097, Lucy Martin. This letter deeply affected Idris, and she instantly proposed that we should return to Datchet to assist Lucy and her mother. I said that I would without delay set out for that place, but entreated her to join her brother and there await my return with the children. But Idris was in high spirits and full of hope. She declared that she could not consent even to a temporary separation from me, but that there was no need of this. The motion of the carriage did her good, and the distance was too trifling to be considered. We could dispatch messengers to Adrian to inform him of our deviation from the original plan. She spoke with vivacity and drew a picture after her own dear heart of the pleasure we should bestow upon Lucy, and declared if I went she must accompany me, and that she should very much dislike to entrust the charge of rescuing them to others, who might fulfill it with coldness or inhumanity. Lucy's life had been one act of devotion and virtue. Let her now reap the small reward of finding her excellence appreciated, and her necessity assisted, by those whom she respected and honored. These and many other arguments were urged with gentle pertinacity, and the ardor of a wish to do all the good in her power, by her whose simple expression of a desire and slightest request had ever been a law with me. I, of course, consented, 
the moment that I saw that she had set her heart upon this step. We sent half our attendant troop on to Adrian, and with the other half our carriage took a retrograde course back to Windsor. I wonder now how I could be so blind and senseless as thus to risk the safety of Idris, for if I had eyes, surely I could see the sure, though deceitful advance of death in her burning cheek and increasing weakness. But she said she was better, and I believed her. Extinction could not be near a being whose vivacity and intelligence hourly increased, and whose frame was endowed with an intense, and I fondly thought, a strong and permanent spirit of life. Who, after a great disaster, has not looked back with wonder at his inconceivable obtuseness of understanding, that could not perceive the many minute threads with which fate weaves the inextricable net of our destinies, until he is enmeshed completely in it? The crossroads which we now entered upon were even in a worse state than the long-neglected highways, and the inconvenience seemed to menace the perishing frame of Idris with destruction. Passing through Dartford, we arrived at Hampton on the second day. Even in this short interval, my beloved companion grew sensibly worse in health, though her spirits were still light, and she cheered my growing anxiety with gay sallies. Sometimes the thought pierced my brain. Is she dying? As I saw her fair, fleshless hand rest on mine, or observed the feebleness with which she performed the accustomed acts of life. I drove away the idea as if it had been suggested by insanity, but it occurred again and again, only to be dispelled by the continued liveliness of her manner. About midday, after quitting Hampton, our carriage broke down. The shock caused Idris to faint, but on her reviving no other ill consequence ensued. Our party of attendants had as usual gone on before us, and our coachman went in search of another vehicle, our former one being rendered by this accident unfit for service. The only place near us was a poor village in which he found a kind of caravan, able to hold four people, but it was clumsy and ill-hung. Besides this, he found a very excellent cabriolet. Our plan was soon arranged. I would drive Idris in the latter, while the children were conveyed by the servant in the former. But these arrangements cost time. We had agreed to proceed that night to Windsor, and thither our purveyors had gone. We should find considerable difficulty in getting accommodation before we reached this place. After all, the distance was only ten miles. My horse was a good one. I would go forward at a good pace with Idris, leaving the children to follow at a rate more consonant to the uses of their cumbrous machine. Evening closed in quickly, far more quickly than I was prepared to expect. At the going down of the sun, it began to snow heavily. I attempted in vain to defend my beloved companion from the storm. The wind drove the snow in our faces, and it lay so high on the ground that we made but small way, while the night was so dark, that but for the white covering on the ground we should not have been able to see a yard before us. We had left our accompanying caravan far behind us, and now I perceived that the storm had made me unconsciously deviate from my intended route. I had gone some miles out of my way. My knowledge of the country enabled me to regain the right road, but instead of going at first agreed upon by a crossroad through Stanwell to Datchet, I was obliged to take the way of Egham and Bishopgate. It was certain, therefore, that I should not be rejoined by the other vehicle, that I should not meet a single fellow creature till we arrived at Windsor. The back of our carriage was drawn up, and I hung a pelisse before it, thus to curtain the beloved sufferer from the pelting sleet. She leaned on my shoulder, growing every moment more languid and feeble. At first she replied to my words of cheer with affectionate thanks, but by degrees she sunk into silence. Her head lay heavily upon me. I only knew that she lived by her irregular breathing and frequent sighs. 
For a moment I resolved to stop, and opposing the back of the cabriolet to the force of the tempest, to expect morning as well as I might. But the wind was bleak and piercing, while the occasional shudderings of my poor Idris and the intense cold I felt myself demonstrated that this would be a dangerous experiment. At length, methought she slept, fatal sleep, induced by frost. At this moment, I saw the heavy outline of a cottage traced on the dark horizon close to us. Dearest love, I said, support yourself but one moment, and we shall have shelter. Let us stop here that I may open the door of this blessed dwelling. As I spoke, my heart was transported, and my senses swam with excessive delight and thankfulness. I placed the head of Idris against the carriage, and leaping out, scrambled through the snow to the cottage, whose door was open. I had apparatus about me for procuring light, and that showed me a comfortable room, with a pile of wood in one corner, and no appearance of disorder, except that the door having been left partly open, the snow drifting in had blocked up the threshold. I returned to the carriage, and the sudden change from light to darkness at first blinded me. When I recovered my sight, eternal God of this lawless world, O supreme death, I will not disturb thy silent reign, or mar my tale with fruitless exclamations of horror. I saw Idris, who had fallen from the seat to the bottom of the carriage. Her head, its long hair pendant, with one arm hung over the side. Struck by a spasm of horror, I lifted her up. Her heart was pulseless, her faded lips unfanned by the slightest breath. I carried her into the cottage. I placed her on the bed. Lighting a fire, I chafed her stiffening limbs. For two long hours I sought to restore departed life, and when hope was as dead as my beloved, I closed with trembling hands her glazed eyes. I did not doubt what I should now do. In the confusion attendant on my illness, the task of interring our darling Alfred had devolved on his grandmother, the ex-queen, and she, true to her ruling passion, had caused him to be carried to Windsor and buried in the family vault in St. George's Chapel. I must proceed to Windsor, to calm the anxiety of Clara, who would wait anxiously for us. Yet I would fain spare her the heart-breaking spectacle of Idris, brought in by me lifeless from the journey. So first I would place my beloved beside her child in the vault, and then seek the poor children who would be expecting me. I lighted the lamps of my carriage. I wrapped her in furs and placed her along the seat, then taking the reins made the horses go forward. We proceeded through the snow, which lay in masses impeding the way, while the descending flakes, driving against me with redoubled fury, blinded me. The pain occasioned by the angry elements, and the cold iron of the shafts of frost which buffeted me, and entered my aching flesh, were a relief to me, blunting my mental suffering. The horses staggered on, and the reins hung loosely in my hands. I often thought I would lay my head close to the sweet, cold face of my lost angel, and thus resign myself to conquering torpor. Yet I must not leave her prey to the fowls of the air, but in pursuance of my determination place her in the tomb of her forefathers, where a merciful God might permit me to rest also. The road we passed through Egham was familiar to me, but the wind and snow caused the horses to drag their load slowly and heavily. Suddenly the wind veered from southwest to west and then again to northwest. As Samson, with tug and strain, stirred from their bases the columns that supported the Philistine temple, so did the gale shake the dense vapors propped on the horizon, while the massy dome of clouds fell to the south, disclosing through their scattered web the clear Empyrean, and the little stars, which were set at an immeasurable distance in the crystalline fields, showered their small rays on the glittering snow. 
Even the horses were cheered and moved on with renovated strength. We entered the forest at Bishopgate, and at the end of the long walk I saw the castle, the proud keep of Windsor, rising in the majesty of proportion, girt with the double belt of its kindred and coval towers. I looked with reverence on a structure, ancient almost as the rock on which it stood, abode of kings, theme of admiration for the wise. With greater reverence and tearful affection, I beheld it as the asylum of the long lease of love I had enjoyed there with the perishable, unmatchable treasure of dust which now lay cold beside me. Now indeed I could have yielded to all the softness of my nature and wept, and woman-like have uttered bitter plaints, while the familiar trees, the herds of living deer, the sward oft pressed by her fairy feet, one by one with sad association presented themselves. The white gate at the end of the long walk was wide open, and I rode up the empty town through the first gate of the feudal tower. And now St. George's Chapel, with its blackened fretted sides, was right before me. I halted at its door, which was open. I entered and placed my lighted lamp on the altar. Then I returned, and with tender caution I bore Idris up the aisle into the chancel, and laid her softly down on the carpet which covered the step leading to the communion table. The banners of the Knights of the Garter and their half-drawn swords were hung in vain and blazonry above the stalls. The banner of her family hung there, still surmounted by its regal crown. Farewell to the glory and heraldry of England. I turned from such vanity with a slight feeling of wonder at how mankind could have ever been interested in such things. I bent over the lifeless corpse of my beloved, and while looking on her uncovered face, the features already contracted by the rigidity of death, I felt as if all the visible universe had grown as soulless, inane, and comfortless as the clay-cold image beneath me. I felt for a moment the intolerable sense of struggle within, and detestation for the laws which govern the world, till the calm still visible on the face of my dead love recalled me to a more soothing tone of mind, and I proceeded to fulfill the last office that can now be paid her. For her I could not lament, so much I envied her enjoyment of the sad immunities of the grave. The vault had been lately opened to place our Alfred therein. The ceremony customary in these later days had been cursorily performed, and the pavement of the chapel, which was its entrance, having been removed, had not been replaced. I descended the steps and walked through the long passage to the large vault, which contained the kindred dust of my idris. I distinguished the small coffin of my babe. With hasty, trembling hands I constructed a bier beside it, spreading it with the furs and Indian shawls, which had wrapped Idris in her journey thither. I lighted the glimmering lamp which flickered in this damp abode of the dead, then I bore my lost one to her last bed, decently composing her limbs and covering them with a mantle, veiling all except her face, which remained lovely and placid. She appeared to rest like one overwearied, her beauteous eyes steeped in sweet slumber. Yet so it was not, she was dead. How intensely I then longed to lie down beside her, to gaze till death should gather me to the same repose. But death does not come at the bidding of the miserable. I had lately recovered from mortal illness, and my blood had never flowed with such an even current, nor had my limbs ever been so instinct with quick life as now. I felt that my death must be voluntary. Yet what more natural than famine, as I watched in this chamber of mortality, placed in a world of the dead, beside the lost hope of my life? Meanwhile, as I looked on her, the features which bore a sisterly resemblance to Adrian brought my thoughts back again to the living, to this dear friend, 
to Clara and to Evelyn, who were probably now in Windsor, waiting anxiously for our arrival. Methought I heard a noise, a step in the far chapel, which was re-echoed by its vaulted roof and borne to me through the hollow passages. Had Clara seen my carriage pass up the town, and did she seek me here? I must save her at least from the horrible scene the vault presented. I sprung up the steps, and then saw a female figure bent with age, and clad in long mourning robes, advanced through the dusky chapel, supported by a slender cane, yet tottering even with this support. She heard me and looked up. The lamp I held illuminated my figure, and the moonbeams, struggling through the painted glass, fell upon her face, wrinkled and gaunt, yet with a piercing eye and commanding brow. I recognized the Countess of Windsor. With a hollow voice she asked, Where is the princess? I pointed to the torn-up pavement. She walked to the spot and looked down into the palpable darkness, for the vault was too distant for the rays of the small lamp I had left there to be discernible. Your light, she said. I gave it her, and she regarded the now visible but precipitous steps, as if calculating her capacity to descend. Instinctively I made a silent offer of my assistance. She motioned me away with a look of scorn, saying in a harsh voice as she pointed downwards, There at least I may have her undisturbed. She walked deliberately down while I, overcome, miserable beyond words or tears or groans, threw myself on the pavement near. The stiffening form of Idris was before me, the death-struck countenance hushed in eternal repose beneath. That was to me the end of all. The day before I had figured to myself various adventures and communion with my friends in aftertime. Now I had leapt the interval and reached the utmost edge and born of life. Thus wrapped in gloom, enclosed, walled up, vaulted over by the omnipotent present, I was startled by the sound of feet on the steps of the tomb, and I remembered her whom I had utterly forgotten, my angry visitant. Her tall form slowly rose upwards from the vault, a living statue, instinct with hate and human, passionate strife. She seemed to me as having reached the pavement of the aisle. She stood motionless, seeking with her eyes alone some desired object, till perceiving me close to her, she placed her wrinkled hand on my arm, exclaiming with tremulous accents, Lionel Verney, my son. This name, applied at such a moment by my angel's mother, instilled into me more respect than I had ever before felt for this disdainful lady. I bowed my head and kissed her shriveled hand, and remarking that she trembled violently, supported her to the end of the chancel, where she sat on the steps that led to the regal stall. She suffered herself to be led, and still holding my hand, she leaned her head back against the stall, while the moonbeams, tinged with various colors by the painted glass, fell on her glistening eyes. Aware of her weakness, again calling to mind her long-cherished dignity, she dashed the tears away, yet they fell fast, as she said, for excuse. She is so beautiful and placid even in death. No harsh feeling ever clouded her serene brow. How did I treat her, wounding her gentle heart with savage coldness? I had no compassion on her in past years. Does she forgive me now? Little, little does it boot to talk of repentance and forgiveness to the dead, had I during her life once consulted her gentle wishes and curbed my rugged nature to do her pleasure, I should not feel thus. Idris and her mother were unlike in person. The dark-haired, deep-set black eyes and prominent features of the ex-queen were in entire contrast to the golden tresses, 
the full blue orbs and the soft lines and contour of her daughter's countenance. Yet in later days, illness had taken from my poor girl the full outline of her face and reduced it to the inflexible shape of the bone beneath. In the form of her brow and her oval chin, there was to be found a resemblance to her mother. Nay, in some moods, their gestures were not unlike, nor having lived so long together was this wonderful. There is a magic power in resemblance. When one we love dies, we hope to see them in another state, and half expect that the agency of mind will inform its new garb in imitation of its decayed earthly vesture. But these are ideas of the mind only. We know that the instrument is shivered. The sensible image lies in miserable fragments, dissolved to dusty nothingness. A look, a gesture, or a fashioning of the limbs similar to the dead in a living person touches a thrilling chord, whose sacred harmony is felt in the heart's dearest recess. Strangely moved, prostrate before this spectral image, and enslaved by the force of blood manifested in likeness of look and movement, I remain trembling in the presence of the harsh, proud, and till now unloved mother of Idris. Poor mistaken woman! In her tenderest mood before, she had cherished the idea that a word, a look of reconciliation from her, would be received with joy and repay long years of severity. Now that the time was gone for the exercise of such power, she fell at once upon the thorny truth of things, and felt that neither smile nor caress could penetrate to the unconscious state, or influence the happiness of her who lay in the vault beneath. This conviction, together with the remembrance of soft replies to bitter speeches, of gentle looks repaying angry glances, the perception of the falsehood, paltriness, and futility of her cherished dreams of birth and power, the overpowering knowledge that love and life were the true emperors of our mortal state, all as a tide rose and filled her soul with stormy and bewildering confusion. It fell to my lot to come as the influential power, to allay the fierce tossing of these tumultuous waves. I spoke to her, I led her to reflect how happy Idris had really been, and how her virtues and numerous excellencies had found scope and estimation in her past career. I praised her the idol of my heart's dear worship, the admired type of feminine perfection. With ardent and overflowing eloquence, I relieved my heart from its burthen, and awoke to the sense of a new pleasure in life as I poured forth the funeral eulogy. Then I referred to Adrian, her loved brother, and to her surviving child. I declared, which I had before almost forgotten, what my duties were with regard to these valued portions of herself, and bade the melancholy repentant mother reflect how she could best expiate unkindness towards the dead by redoubled love of the survivors. Consoling her, my own sorrows were assuaged. My sincerity won her entire conviction. She turned to me, the hard, inflexible, persecuting woman, turned with a mild expression of face, and said, If our beloved angel sees us now, it will delight her to find that I do you even tardy justice. You are worthy of her, and from my heart I am glad that you won her away from me. Pardon, my son, the many wrongs I have done you. Forget my bitter words and unkind treatment. Take me and govern me as you will. I seized the docile moment to propose our departure from the church. First, she said, let us replace the pavement above the vault. We drew near to it. Shall we look on her again, I asked. I cannot, she replied, and I pray you neither do you. We need not torture ourselves by gazing on the soulless body, while her living spirit is buried quick in our hearts, and her surpassing loveliness is so deeply carved there that sleeping or waking she must ever be present to us. 
For a few moments, we bent in solemn silence over the open vault. I consecrated my future life to the embalming of her dear memory. I vowed to serve her brother and her child till death. The convulsive sob of my companion made me break off my internal horizons. I next dragged the stones over the entrance of the tomb and closed the gulf that contained the life of my life. Then supporting my decrepit fellow mourner, we slowly left the chapel. I felt as I stepped into the open air as if I had quitted an happy nest of repose for a dreary wilderness, a tortuous path, a bitter, joyless, hopeless pilgrimage. End of Volume 3, Chapter 3 of The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Read by Nicodemus